Welcome to the World This Week. I'm Marco, and our guests to discuss the past seven days of world events include Craig Capitas of the Daily Beast. Good evening to you, sir. Hey, Mark. Great to see you. On the other side of our studio, but not necessarily against, we have Borza Daragari of The Independent and Matthew Dalton of The Wall Street Journal. Good evening to you, gentlemen. Good evening. Let's uh, get underway with our first uh, story of the week. Ukraine suffering some 30 Russian drone strikes and um, drone strikes and cruise missile strikes overnight. This has been the pattern all week, of course. Thursday, a nine-year-old child and a mother killed by falling wreckage of one of the Russian drones shot down over Kiev. The intensity of Russia's attacks is unprecedented since the start of the invasion last year. Meanwhile, Russia accuses Ukraine of striking Moscow, Belgorod and Krasnodar. Gentlemen, the situation, Craig, can I start with you? Clearly, what we're seeing here is a kind of mounting of, of the situation from both sides. Well, this is something that we said like three days after the war started over a year ago, that the Russians have the manpower, they certainly have the ammunition to blow Ukraine to the smithereens if they want to. And this is precisely what they're doing, using old school, uh, uh, world, ta- old school World War I tactics, leave the Ukrainians nothing but their eyes for weeping. And, and they're not, you know, some pundits say, well, they're going to run, the Russians are going to run out of ammo. No, they're not. They have all kinds of ammo, and they're just going to dump it on Ukraine. The mo- and, and it will continue. This is going to continue. There's really no news here. The significant thing is what we're seeing happening inside Russia. The attacks going on in Russian facilities on the other side of the border. And the question is, who's behind that? Is that some sort of Russian resistance maquis underground? Or is it a Ukrainian operation? If it's the former... That's the most significant thing we've seen since the war started, because the only way uh, Ukraine, Ukraine cannot win this war. It's the Russians who can win this war by overthrowing Putin, because Putin's not going to stop. That's an interesting twist, Craig. Thank you very much indeed. Borzu. I mean, your sense of it. I mean, it's it's uh, escalating. Um, I don't think that there's anything new about the uh, Russian attacks on Kiev and other cities, the uh, targeting of civilian facilities. I think it goes back to, you know, I mean, the the strategy he described is the same strategy they used in Syria uh, was the same strategy they used in in Chechnya as well a a generation ago. Uh, Bomb it to smithereens and just, you know, uh, crush the civilian population, uh, depopulate areas and then hope for the best. So, I mean, will that work in the case of Ukraine? A determined uh, a country with a, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a emboldened sense of national pride? Well, I don't think it worked for Hitler in Russia. So I don't, I'm not sure if that particular kind of strategy works in a situation uh, like Ukraine uh, with a, you know, kind of uh, uh, integrated uh, armed forces, integrated with the, the sense of national identity and purpose. In terms of uh, what's happening, Matthew, what's your take on the situation? We clearly, this idea of these separatists or not mm-hmm. attacking, attacking Russian ground, Belgorod, Krasnodar, the drone strikes on Moscow. What, what do you sense is happening there? Well, I think the in- interesting question is to what extent this can really shake um, the, the position of the Russian government, the position of the Russian elites that, that are kind of around the government and then have some, some sway, even though... Um, power in Russia is increasingly concentrated in, in one man, Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I think Putin is, is trying to do at this point is he, he's, he's playing a waiting game. He's hoping um, that the political will in the West uh, to support Ukraine will dissipate. 
Um, he's perhaps looking at the elections in the United States in, in 2024 mm. to see if Trump wins. Um, he's looking at uh, elections maybe even further down the road in, in Europe. So I, I think that the, the one kind of thing he can hope for that can really shift uh, things in his favor um, is, is a Trump victory in, in the U.S. elections. Um, and if that happens, the, the, the key supporter of Ukraine um, the United States, their commitment to supporting Ukraine with weapons um, and with other forms of support will be definitely in question. Um, these kinds of attacks inside Russia, I'm skeptical that they can really um, have an impact um, and change Russia's uh, position on the war in Ukraine, either one way or the other. I mean, I, I think one thing that that's a potentially scary consequence of what we've been seeing is if, if Russia does decide to step up its attacks, you know, as Craig was saying, they have the military capability that, God forbid, they, they have nuclear weapons. Does this um, spur them to, to take even more draconian um, and, and criminal attacks against Ukraine? Stepping it up towards the um, Putin's already threatened the nuclear option, hasn't he, to a degree? Yeah. There's one good thing that I mean, there's one advantage that if the Ukrainians are behind this, just uh, the attacks inside uh, Russia. The, I mean, there's one uh, the idea that could take hold in another capital, in Beijing, when they see this thing, that the Chinese were skeptical about this thing from the very beginning. They're, they're growing more and more impatient, it's obvious. It's bad for business, and that's mostly what uh, China is, is interested in, in Eurasia. Uh, they're not interested in, in this particular war. They don't care about Ukraine, really. Uh, they don't see it as part of a, a, a strategic conquest the way Putin does. So. The more the, the whoever is doing this can make it seem like it's going out of control, moving into uh, Eurasia, moving eastward, uh, uh, creating a mess here, creating a mess there, the more, more it might make the, the Chinese leadership nervous. Do you sense maybe China sees a possibility of rebuilding Ukraine? Maybe that's their, their next way, way through it. I mean, if I were Ukraine, um, I would dangle that. You know, in quiet diplomatic talks, but that's not something you can talk about now. That's kind of, a, 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 you know, you would have Indeed. to be a real vulture. <laughs> Indeed. Well, <laughs> we get it all on the table here at The World This Week. Craig, Donald Trump, if he gets elected, would he really pull the plug? Would he really sort of say, yes. OK, let's do this. Yes. Let's do this to help my friend Vladimir. Seriously. Yes. 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 The man has... He's Donald Trump. I mean, seeing what the Russians have done in Ukraine, the war crimes, all the things that have been done, would he, would he have the gall to do that? Surely not. Well, he doesn't have a gallbladder, so, you know, it's not, it's not a... It, look, hmm. Trump is a character without any character. You know, I, I mean, I, it's not something I should be even mildly tub-thumping, but I think I'm the only person at this table who's ever actually had dinner with a man <laughs> for, for over two hours. Well, we haven't, none of us. No, so. no, and, I, and I'm saying it, it is, is what you see on TV is what you get. Uh, uh, he, he, is a, he, he is a complete narcissist, uh, completely uh, ill-equipped to be the president of, of the United States, but he's a character, and he's interesting, and he fits a certain mindset in the United States. We like our soap operas. We like our HBO movies like Succession and this and that. We like to see it for real, and and, and much of America, or God, certainly the Republicans, enjoy it. Brian Cox. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean they they enjoy they enjoy the show. Mm. Uh, I don't even think you need to have a social media account to realize this. If you just read the newspaper or look at you know any cable TV news network in America or even the nightly news programs. So, but in, but terms, of the, in terms of the show, I mean Vladimir Zelensky clearly his showbiz know-how and ability to perform has clearly helped to create in some ways, the, the, the platform to get as many people behind Ukraine as possible. But, Do you think this... But ju- just on the, I just wanted to just yeah, send him another point, which is that, um, you know, the, the Republicans uh, under Trump, um, they did do more to arm Ukraine uh, than Obama did. Obama was actually quite skeptical of, of sending weapons to Ukraine. And, and because of Republican pressure um, in Congress from the, the kind of Lindsey Graham and, and John McCain types, that part of the sure. Republican party who are very hawkish um, in terms of supporting Ukraine, um, the United States did end up doing more kind of militarily for Ukraine. Now, the question is, you know, if Trump wins and also combine that with the the rise in the Republican Party of the Trump aligned part of, of the party, which is which is not supportive of Ukraine, you put those things together and things could turn out differently. But it's very hard to, to know what to think of what Donald Trump would actually do an office based on his campaign well, statements. It's well, just- I, I, I can tell you that uh, within the uh, the world of American cable TV news, there are a number of, of cable, right-wing cable TV news outfits, which are basically the soapboxes for, for this group. And... The MAGA people, to be yeah, clear. for for the MAGA people, and there's a big argument going on, and I've seen it firsthand about certain people at these cable TV outfits are uh, very, very much behind Putin, Z- yeah. Zelensky. Oh wow! And the other half are very, very much behind, even within the MAGA. Yeah, yes, yes, within the ones who control the airwaves, the cable airwaves. So you know, unlike the, the, OANN. And yeah, uh, yes, and yes. Things. It's and I, I have, I have seen some of these arguments take place in front of Trump. And it's, it's really quite interesting to, uh, you know, to, to observe. I mean, I, I've not seen enough to have any serious reporting, but it's what, it's what we called, you know, there's a nut of a story here uh, because there's a lot of yelling and screaming going on within that tent yeah. over whether you stick with Zelensky or you abandon him and, of course, abandon NATO. And that is quite a, a question to, to unravel, Matthew. Yeah, this is an issue that um, interestingly divides the Republican Party. I think it kind of, you know, you go back up to the historically, the Republicans were extremely hawkish on uh, Russia, on the Soviet Union. Um, you know, it was Bush too, uh, George W. Bush, who pushed very aggressively for the expansion of NATO, um, you know, was proposing to to include Ukraine and Georgia in NATO, you know, far back in, in 2008. And that, that was one of the things that, that really uh, ticked off Vladimir Putin. Um, and it was Obama who was kind of like, well, I don't know if we want to do this. We want to kind of have the reset with Russia. Mm-hmm. So the, the issues, it's one of those weird issues in American politics that are not, you know, Democrat, Republican. It's just, it's, it's all kind of scrambled. So uh, yeah, it's, it's very hard to predict what would happen if Trump uh, and the and the kind of Trump Republican wing of the party uh, won the elections. But your assessment is correct in that Putin is counting on a Trump victory 
and will do whatever he possibly can, making mischief, bots, paying people off, doing whatever is necessary to ensure a Trump victory. The outcome, as Matt says, we don't we don't know. But, but do you know what that means, though? That means that they're counting on war until January 2025. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's that's mm-hmm. a pretty grim thought for mm-hmm. all the civilians living in Ukraine and all the well, it is. You know, it's, it's people uh, living I, in exile right now. Mm-hmm. Who's going to run out of soldiers first? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, Putin can always kind of freeze the conflict for, uh, or hope to freeze the conflict. I mean, it depends how determined That's Ukraine true. is to, to, to counterattack, um, yeah. to push to push things back towards the Russia. I mean, even to try and take back Crimea. Um, that that will kind of determine what what Putin's well, you know, the I, other, how long Putin can wait. Basically, yeah. You know, the other the other thing I was I was talking to a colleague of ours who's out at. Uh, covering Roland Garros this week. Hmm. And he was telling me that the place has erupted over <laughs> fights between Ukrainian tennis players and Russian tennis players and Ukrainian journalists. It's just, mm-hmm. it's it's like a war zone out there. And of course, the sports officials don't have a clue what to do. And you kind of get to the conclusion that people have to really understand there's a world war going on, folks. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to take sides. Mm-hmm. At some point, you have to take sides no matter who you are. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. well, the my friend. former shop, the Wall Street Journal, has one of its finest reporters been locked up mm. in a Moscow jail cell. Yeah, badge. free Evan. You damn Evan, straight, ex- you free Evan. Explain about the badge so everybody at home yeah, gets it. I was it. just showing support for my colleague, uh, Evan Gershkovich, who's been in, been in a Russian prison now for six weeks, I believe. And, um, yeah, he's, his detention has been extended uh, un- until August um, so obviously that's it's terrible what the what Russia has has done to him. He's an, an accredited journalist, accredited by the Russian government to to work in Russia. Um, he uh, and he's been falsely accused, and um, you know we're just hoping that he can be released as soon as possible. Thank you for wearing the badge. Thank you for explaining so everybody at home is in no doubt as to what that badge is about. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much indeed. Let's move on to uh, Kosovo, Emmanuel Macron. Adding his voice to the chorus, trying to get Serbia and Kosovo basically to stop it. Uh, NATO sent in 700 extra peacekeepers this week after clashes in four municipalities in the north of Kosovo near to the Serbian border. Kosovo and Serbs there boycotting the elections last month. Kosovo and Albanians then, because of that, elected as, uh, well, to the post of mayor. Armed security was used to ensure the safety of these mayors as they took up their posts. So cue the violence. 30 peacekeepers were hurt in the process. Let's hear from both sides, Serbia and Kosovo. I believe that would be the most powerful move and the move that might resolve the issue is its withdrawal of an alleged mayor. This has to be first move and then I believe we'll have enough strength uh, to carry on with our conversations, with our talks to not only to de-escalate the situation but to make some steps forward. Where the pressure needs to go right now is Vucic's office in Belgrade. That's where the tough discussion on him understanding once and forever that Kosovo is a sovereign nation, Kosovo is an independent nation, and will remain so forever. Well, the uh, French president discussed the situation at the European political community meeting in Moldova. Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz spotted speaking Serbia's, uh, with uh, Serbia's president Vucic, who we just heard from then. Uh, Macron's words came very shortly after this uh, short videoed exchange. 
Ce que nous avons demandé aux deux parties est très simple. Our demands to both parties involved are simple. The engagement for Kosovo to organize new elections in four municipalities and a clear participation of Serbs in these elections and that Kosovo deals with the question of the association of Serbian municipalities. La question de l'association des municipalités serbes de la part du Kosovo. To put it simply, those are the demands that we have put forward. La demande qui nous a que nous avons effectuée. The man you're marking there, looking like the voice of reason, sounding like the voice of reason, but it's the problem that he's asking for two sides that will never quite see eye to eye to to do just that. Matthew. Well, uh, you know, one of the the reasons why um, the, I mean the. the the EU and the US and, and the, you know, the most of the international community um, has been for, for decades now focused on the situation to, to ensure that it doesn't explode into something something bigger. Um, and what the what the Kosovar government did here seems to have been a huge mistake and they've really set their standing back in the international community. I mean, you've seen the US and the French government, the EU, pretty much everybody criticizing what, what they tried to do here. And this is not... Um, you know, it's a very small uh, political entity, a country um, that, you know, it counts on international support as, you know, dying to get into the EU. Uh, so they, they can ill afford to um, do things like this that really lead to the, the, the big powers, <laughs> the great powers, let's face it, that, to, to question, um, question their policies towards, towards Kosovo. So... I mean, I think that the the uh, the, the Serbians and the, the Kosovar Serbians have been uh, trying to provoke this for some time. Um, you know, look, there's an enclave in northern Kosovo that is mostly Serbian, and it's like basically a, uh, you know, drug and human trafficking hub. Um, and um, they've got their little rackets and so on, and they have their, you know, kind of proto-fascistic, pro-heavily ultra-nationalist uh, uh, Serbian uh, uh, kind of population there. Um, in the former Yugoslavia, the Kosovars were the lowest of the low on the pecking order, even below, like, the Bosnians and so on, and with the Serbians on top, and the, 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 the Kosovar Serbians cannot tolerate, and they will never tolerate this. Interestingly... I think this is like one solution. This is the one situation, one of the situations where if they were quickly made part of the EU, none of it would matter because they would all like, you know, all the, the drug dealers and human traffickers would move to Amsterdam and uh, the Kosovars would become uh, day laborers in Germany and the place would depopulate like the rest of the Balkans and Eastern Europe. But, you know, and that would resolve this issue. Um, on the other hand, you know, Albania is going to be, is, is an important player in this whole thing. You know, the, the Albanians are a NATO member. And, you know, I don't know if anyone's been to Albania, but that is a country that is really genuinely trying to uh, uh, get its uh, governance and economic standards up to an EU level. That'll happen before um, Serbia and the former Yugoslavia get into the EU. Craig, do you feel that Macron's words will be heard by either side? Well, I hope so. You know, it's this this fight has been going on since 1389 in the Battle of Kosovo, and I, I brought I brought a visual aid. Mm. Uchika, Kosovo, a bit, a bit higher, a bit higher. Kosovo Liberation Army. I, I covered the Bosnian Wars years ago for the old seed, mm -hmm. and uh, at the end of the war, I, I was for three months embedded with the Kosovo Liberation Army. 
And the war was over, and I said to the commander of the unit, is this over and done with? And he ripped it off his sleeve, and he signed it on the back. Mr. C Colonel Curti was his name. <laughs> and he said, it's over, but don't forget, the Yugoslav crisis began in Kosovo, and it will end in Kosovo. Uh, you're right about the north. It's also the mineral-rich area up there around Mitrovica and the Stari Turg mines. Uh, Sell it to the Austrians. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a it's it, it it's a mess, and you need EU intervention in here now, real quickly, because what you're seeing here is is you know the, the Kosovars. You don't want Uchika to come back. Didn't one of those guys get indicted at The Hague? Indeed they did. Indeed they did. You don't want these guys to come back. In the same token, you don't, you don't want the <coughs> Milosevic Serbian types coming back either. You're and a that, Balkans guy. To what extent is uh, Kucic uh, kind of, uh, what, to what extent is Belgrade stirring this up for its own domestic purposes? I mean, he's like that kind of populist. Well, yes, yes, they are, because they will tell you and it's true that the 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 uh, uh, Serbian Orthodox Church was actually founded in in Kosovo in Pristina. And the other interesting thing here is this is one of Vladimir Putin's zones of mischief, of course. Mm. Of course. But what's fascinating about this is during the old K four days when everyone went up from Bosnia to Kosovo, mm. the Russians came in on the side of K four. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeltsin had sided. With, with the Kosovars on this, which, of course, you're not, you're not seeing now. Let me just bring in Bozu and Matthew to talk a little bit about this situation. I mean, clearly, if 700 NATO peacekeepers can't work it out, gentlemen, who can? So, I mean, NATO is sending 700 in. He's saying you need to have EU intervention. He means diplomatic, doesn't he, obviously? I mean, definitely, I'll just say that there is a lack of diplomatic and political bandwidth globally right now. Um, Ukraine has sucked up so much energy. You go to Brussels, you talk to people there. No one cares about the Iran nuclear deal. No one cares about Syria. No one cares about the Taliban. It's just Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And that is, you know, uh, uh, one of those side effects is that these sorts of conflicts, like including also like Sudan, these sorts of festering conflicts are just left to fester. And no one has the attention span to deal with them. And no leader, it doesn't get on anyone's agenda. And it will explode. Now, Serbia has been kind of checked. They were starting to serve as Putin's gendarme in the Balkans, and they were like read the riot act by the EU. It's like, guess who owns your country, essentially? Guess mm. who invests here? Not Russia. Mm. So you better like get your act together. And they halted their disruptive activities. I don't think they stirred this up. I think that maybe they're taking advantage of it, Belgrade, for their own purposes in the way that right-wing populists do take advantage of these sorts Indeed, of things. Indeed, and Vukic in his previous... Uh job as a media advisor to uh, Milosevic, I believe, obviously knows about that kind of morality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's introduce uh, our guest who's arrived, uh, braving the Paris traffic, Richard Verdi. Of Sorry to be late. Great to see it. Apologies. No, we're just glad you're here, because it's always a pleasure to have you in the studio. <laughs> yeah, Another guy in a blue shirt. <laughs> <laughs> blue shirt's a go-go in this mistake on the Booker. Hey, Booker, where are the, <laughs> where are the ladies on this show? This is terrible. If you're not wearing a blue shirt, you can't 2023. <gasps> Richard, um, we're discussing Kosovo and the Correct. situation there. I mean, clearly, uh, the, I think the conclusion is we need some kind of EU intervention to stop this getting worse. 
probably considering that, uh, to use very frank words, this has been a disaster for the European Union for the last 10 years. I mean, the amount of money invested by the EU. By the way, when I wrote my own stories a couple of days ago, I tried on the EU website, on the various EU website, I tried to track the amount of money given to Kosovo. I couldn't find it. I could not find the total amount of money given to Kosovo for the last 10 years. So that being said, there was a huge effort by the European Union and it has not been followed by normalization. Keep in mind the size of Kosovo. It's as big as a French department. So it's really small. So when you can't when you are not able to come up with a solution in such a small country, then you've got a problem. 700 NATO NATO peacekeepers have been sent in extra yes. since yes. the yeah. clashes began and the four municipalities yeah. in question. Well, you, 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 you see what happened in uh, Kishinev during the uh, politi European political community meeting uh, with Macron and other leaders, I mean, clearly saying, Albin Kurti, the Kosovo Prime Minister, you should act, you should organize new local elections. So I believe there is, there is leverage by the European Union, but to be fair, it should not be only on the Kosovo government. The same kind of leverage should also apply to Serbia. Indeed. Kurti signed your badge. Is that the same Kurti? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same guy. That's who's now currently leaving the country. And he signed your badge. Yeah. <laughs> Uchika. So, so not only have you dined with Donald Trump, you've got a badge signed by. Uh, who knew? <laughs> the food was better at, with Trump, though. I got to tell you that. Yeah, but sir, but ago. the influence that's, that uh, the EU has over Serbia, in particular, is a little bit uh, sort of counterbalanced by the fact that both Russia, like they have these this special special relationship with Russia, and also China. The, the Serbia has really uh, sought out. I mean. You say that the the entity that owns Serbia, it's not arguably it's not Europe. It's actually the China and Chinese state control control companies. They have a huge presence there. They own lots of factories. They employ tens of thousands of people. So Serbia has had this strategy of actually uh, they, they've got this kind of weird relationship with the EU, where they're they're they've been seeking out Chinese investment to the point where the EU is wondering, you know, what happens when uh, Serbia has to come. You know, if it if it actually ever makes it into the EU, um, what happens to to all these investments? Where you know it's the Chinese government following Chinese rules. Um, is that possibly compatible with with being in the EU? Indeed, but everybody talks about the Russian influence in Serbia, don't they? Political, it's yeah. political, cultural. it's political, cultural, even the, the It's the orthodoxy, it's the yeah. church. Yeah. But ec economically, China is is arguably the the main force there. Um, they they probably don't really care about this Kosovo issue. It'd be interesting to see how much uh, how many people the the Chinese company how many actual Serbians the Chinese companies employ Lot, lots. versus I, the uh, versus the European companies. I'd be just, just yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's lot. I went to I wrote a story about a, a, Chinese, a Serbian steel factory that was bought uh -huh. by the Chinese um, <coughs> about five five six years ago. And um, that it's they employ like five thousand Serbian people. Right. They, there's a kind of layer of Chinese management at the top, but it's it's mainly Serbian. That's a good deal. Serbian people in China. But Matthew, <laughs> yeah. the question the question on that I would have is is so so if the Chinese start playing rough, hmm. what are the the workers going to do? Are they going to kick the Chinese out, or are they going to play ball with them? <laughs> well, I, I think the. It's probably just like the relationship with any you know any between workers and any management. Yeah. Um, except that you know I think that. Yeah, the Chinese government probably has more of an impl inclination maybe to, uh, to, to twist the arm of the Serbian government if, if Bush comes to, su 
push comes to shove, and they also own a bunch of Serbian debt. So that's that's another thing. Interesting. <laughs> We will watch that uh, situation with uh, great interest. Thank you uh, all. Let's move on. Death penalty of homosexuality. International condemnation of a tough new law in Uganda, which targets the LGBTQ plus community. Even promoting homosexuality, which presumably means identifying as gay, could bring a 20-year jail term. Joe Biden, the U.S. president, was one of the first to speak out against this. Human rights activists in Uganda, and that's a brave place to be a human rights activist, uh, say that basically it's all about state-sponsored homophobia. Well, a guest on our debate show on Tuesday spoke of the fear the new law has created uh, for her and her friends, no sooner signed by President Yoweri Museveni. They are petrified because uh, you can't leave the house. And even if you're in the house, someone comes and says something to your landlord, your landlord is evicting you because they also don't want to pay the penalty or be liable or in any way. Because um, today, someone's someone called someone land, someone's landlord and just told them, if you don't get rid of those people, we're going to come back and burn down your apartments, burn down the building. So... Now, even if it's you and you're the landlord and this is just a person and then it's your house, you cannot let this person stay. So this person who is hiding in their house now has nowhere to hide. So we are petrified. It's so scary. I don't know how we can begin to explain this because there are no words yet to explain it, but it's so scary, it's so dangerous, it's so bad right now to be identifying as queer in Uganda. Gracie Brander there, who was talking about uh, the fact that vigilantes are taking it upon themselves to target anybody who they think might be gay in Uganda, and with some horrible consequences at Borzu. I mean, this is just, I mean, as, as, as the human rights groups in Uganda are saying, it's state-sponsored homophobia. Yeah, I mean, this is a part of a, a pattern uh, that we're seeing globally, this is the most extreme example of that. Uh, they, he went there, you know, outlawing homosexuality and other, I think, right-wing populist uh, countries in the name of family and God and nation mm. uh, have uh, drifted in this direction. Uh, recently, we had uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who before and after he was elected, uh, uh, made uh, inflammatory remarks about the LGBT community in Turkey. Um, yeah, this is a strategy. We see it with Viktor Orban. We see it with, you know, right-wing populist. Uh, populists all over the West, and now it's being kind of emulated in other parts of the world as well. Mobilize people, uh, get them riled up by targeting the most vulnerable and defenseless minority community in the country. Uh, I think it's, you know, I mean, I think I, I'm a journalist and I don't like, you know, like to say these things often, but I would say that this is like, you know, kind of evil. Mm. And you're basically toying with evil by, you know, um, let me say this. History has shown that uh, countries who uh, uh, target vulnerable minorities in their politics do not have a history mm. of, of developing democratically or even in a, in a productive, constructive way. And sc scary is that whilst there are many people condemning and, and sharing your views, there are some countries who are thinking, hey, this is a, not a bad idea. Ghana, I understand, Richard, looking to maybe institute a similar kind of law. Ghana. 
Well, I think this was said. Um, those uh, LGBT are a, a perfect target for those right-wing populists who want uh, basically two things. On the one hand, they want to find a culprit for all the difficulties in societies, and on the second hand, they want to make families afraid and in order to get the votes from the family, from those families. So I think that's been seen elsewhere. We, uh, we could mention also Vladimir Putin, who continuously depict the West for being an LGBT uh, decadence uh, uh, continent. So there's no surprise. But I think there is also something else, that those head of state, like Museveni, who's been in power for something like 20 years, they are very much afraid of the international activist network behind the, the LGBT community. It's true that there is a strong solidarity. These, these networks are strong. They are powerful. They know how to fight. They know how to struggle. So when these governments target them, it's not only targeting the minority, it's also targeting the political power that they see. Of course, Matthew, one of the things is that if Uganda's looking for um, foreign investment to come in or support or any from, say, for instance, from the United States. Clearly, this is going to make people think twice. Yeah, this is going to have a real impact. Uh, you know, both foreign aid, foreign investment by by American or European companies, or you know, from the advanced economy, gener the advanced world, generally, generally speaking. Um, you know, no. If this law sticks, and and you know, no. American company, I, I, no European company is going to start new investments. You know, they have their existing investments, whether that will stand. You know, and, and just, I think, to, to underline a point about the politics in the U.S. in particular, and, and also in Europe, is that um, there's been huge strides in, in terms of protections and, and equality uh, and gay rights um, in the United States. It's a position that uh, transcends partisan politics, you know, for, for um, gay people, for, for, you know, and the, the, the trans issue is now a big political football in, in the U.S., but that there is kind of a broad political support now, I think, for gay rights and for, for lesbian rights. Well, I, I think this whole thing needs to be approached from a different perspective. This story has to be redefined. There are over 30 countries in Africa. Yep which persecutes same-sex <clears throat> relations, and it's not going to change. And if America doesn't want to invest in what Uganda might have strategically, there are a lot of other countries that will invest. Yeah. And I think this story needs to be reframed. Why? Because I remember this same story 30 years ago, and nothing's changed. We have allowed places, or the Ugandans in these other countries, have allowed themselves to be turned into asylums of misfortune. And why is that? That's my question. And I think that we here at this table forget something, and I think our viewers do too. Our delta, what we're coming at this at, is from a liberal democracy. Okay? Uganda is not a liberal democracy. Turkey is not a liberal democracy. Russia is not a liberal democracy. China is not a liberal democracy. We can go down the list. So the question I have is how do we f reframe this? Why, after all these years and billions of dollars of foreign aid, American and other, into these countries, why is it still the criminal class that's in charge? Look at Nigeria. They're now having a fuel crisis. <clears throat> a fuel crisis in Nigeria. 
Am I wrong, Matthew? Sec world's second largest producer of oil or third? I forget. It's been a long time since I covered the oil markets. A little bit. There's a gasoline crisis in Uganda. Mm. It's the issue that they can't refine. I, I mean, I'm sorry, in Nigeria, I, 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 it, it's, it's remarkable to me. How, how did we get to this? I mean, a, that's a big question, but I will say that one of the things that is kind of, uh, you know, they go in the West, they go after trans people now mm. uh, because the... Uh, you know, you, you can't go after gay and lesbian people because they have a lobby and they have power and they mm -hmm. own stuff. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that mm -hmm. is actually one of the important things for, you know, the message to send to uh, LGBT communities in these sorts of embattled situation is get powerful, organize, own stuff, and then they will have to deal with you. And then, you know, you see the, the, the Republicans in the U.S. who, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when they were, you know, completely uh, on the side of Museveni when it came to a gay and lesbian issue. I'm, I'm old enough to remember and, you know, now they've come around to supporting gay marriage and so on because they, they're afraid of the power of the uh, The gay LGBT community people. has tried that in repressive regimes for over 30 years. I've covered stories in that. Reporters before me have covered stories like that. Mm. And guess where those people are? They're behind bars. There's no, there's no way. It, it just is not going to work. They get too powerful in Uganda or any of these other non-liberal democracies. These dictators will arrest them and put them in jail. You know, and I and I think that the story as we cover it, I don't know what the answer is, okay? But I think the story, the, the lead is no longer that the LBGTQ gay community in Uganda is being discriminated against and being sent to jail and can be uh, executed for their sexual preference. I don't think that's the lead anymore. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to start yelling at me on social media. But that's not the lead anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the lead is, mm -hmm. but it's not that. It's horrible that it's happening. It's horrible that they're turning people against one another to basically not just not just blow the whistle on them, but to beat them up and burn down their homes. Yes. That's the horrible thing about it, isn't it? That sort of sense that you're turning a people it's awful. against the people. It's, it's awful. awful. It's God-smackingly awful. We pogroms. Yeah, you know, yes, that's basically yeah. what it is. I that's the word. That, I mean, you know, mm. I thought Uganda had moved on since Idi Amin, but... There's this horrible yeah. sense of this kleptocracy going through it all, which is still there. And, it's, and again, turning on people like that, it's absolutely horrific. We need to move on, gentlemen, if you'll excuse me. Now, two women facing the possibility of the death penalty in Iran. Uh, Nilufa Hamedi and uh, Elayo Mohammadi are on trial in Tehran. They're journalists accused of spying and working with foreign powers, namely the United States. Their crime, this is a good one, they broke a story journalistically back in September about the death in police custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini. You'll recall Masa Amini was arrested over a headscarf incident. She died in police custody three days after being arrested. Eyewitnesses say that she was beaten by police. Iran denies anything suspicious ever took place. Uh, a number of issues here, aren't there? Obviously, press freedom, but obviously the treatment of women in Iran. Gentlemen. Well, well, I remember talking about Iran exactly here a few months ago, and we were all wondering, will the government, will the regime manage to not only survive, but to win the repression, to continue to repress? And that's exactly what's happening. I mean, clearly, uh, when I arrived late, sorry, mm -hmm. you were telling that it's all about Ukraine. Well, it's benefit, it is benefiting the Iran regime. The pressure, the, 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 the watch we have now on Iran is not as 
big as it was before the Ukraine war. And now they got the backing and you have this axis between Moscow and Tehran. So I'm not surprised that they are going after the journalist. Uh, we don't know what will happen, but clearly the sign is that they want to silence all voices after having finally managed to curb the protest. Charges of spying and working with the foreign power, this bores you. Is yeah, I know this milieu, I lived in Tehran, I know the, the kind of reformist press, the, the small network of, of very talented, very gifted, very determined journalists. You know, what did these two women do? They did their job really well. That's all They're they did. If you look at the day, story, these, these guys went and they heard about a story about a girl who was uh, killed by the morality police. They went to the hospital, tried to interview them, like what we would do in any kind of, you know, if this happened in a, uh, uh, by a Philadelphia police uh, to, a, you know, an African-American guy or, or someone who they, we would do the same thing. We'd try to report out it. And then, you know, one of the other journalists went out to the uh, Kurdish area of, of Iran and reported on the funeral and so on. And... Like, okay, like that's basically what we were all trained to do when you are doing a story. And so basically they did their job. They did it well and they did it bravely in an in a environment where there was a lot of eyes upon them and there was a lot of security forces deployed everywhere. And this is a message to the journalists, to the brave journalists in that milieu, the, the very talented ones who are like basically um, staying in Iran and fighting the good fight. They're like, you know, either get out of this field, which doesn't pay anything, Stop doing real journalism or, you know, here's your passport. Get out. And they are fine with that as well. And that is the message of the they're not going to put these two women to death. Trust me, they won't. You know, they, 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 they don't they generally if they do, I'll be completely shocked. Um, but they are sending the message that these, uh, you know, women are facing a possible death penalty because they, you know, did real journalism. So don't you dare do real journalism. Matthew. Well, a free press is one of the greatest threats to, to authoritarian mm -hmm. regimes. Um, and I think, you know, given how much faster information moves these days, you know, we're not, we're talking about, uh, we're not talking about print anymore. We're talking about, mm -hmm. um, even just online. We're talking about social media where information can just zip and, and, um, quickly, you know, spread like wildfire and, and protests can follow soon afterward. And that's what happened. Um, so, you know, these governments and, and, this is something that the, just the risks for journalists um, all around the world are, are, are going up, I think, as, as authoritarian governments realize um, the threat that, that the free press poses to them. Um, and we, we've, you know, the, that's a documented trend. Um, and, you know, my colleague is one of those people. Um, these, these brave journalists are. So it's, it's, um, it's something that I, I don't know what to do about it, but um, it's frightening. It is. It's, it's, it's one of these things. We take the expression, I think some of us... This is revenge as well. These two journalists, they brought this story to the world. They are rock stars. They should be honored. They should be given like massive awards on a global scale. They brought the story of Masa Amini to the world, and they, they don't, did it in real time. They don't, they don't need massive awards on a global scale. Where they need massive awards is in Iran, which ain't South Philly. And... The issue here, again, trying to reframe this continuing story, is their readers. Why aren't their readers not standing up for them? Are they too frightened? Or well, don't, they or, did. Or they don't did. they did. care? They did. No, but they look, did. I, I see what you're saying. You're saying In both this one and the Uganda thing, I see where you're coming from. You're saying that we shouldn't impose our liberal values 
on these authoritarian societies. No, I'm not societies. suggesting that. I'm I not am suggesting Iranian that. American, and I'm not imposing. <clears throat> I mean, I come from a tradition in that country that is rooted in liberalism and secularism and poetry and booze and art. So I reject the claim that I am imposing or that someone else is imposing uh, uh, values uh, on other people. There have been, uh, there's been homosexuality since antiquity. That is not a Western value. It is just part of well, our Well, that's not my argument. Heritage. That's not my argument. My, 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 I have questions. That, that my job is to ask questions. And my question is, why has not, have not the Iranian people, the readers, of, of of these articles. They did they wrote they the did. articles and they, they went out in the street they, and they, 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 they massively. I, did, I have no Gentlemen, I have not, times against I have this, not this seen them will been continue, able but to going affect off this any change. Right now. The world this week, thank you to Craig Capitas, Matthew Dalton, Borsa Daragai, and Richard Verley, who arrived late, but very appreciated you came. Thank you so much indeed. Thanks all for watching. Stay with us, more to come here on France twenty four.